This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. Well, it might be warming up here for summer, but in the Northern Hemisphere, it's winter and that means gas is needed at a time when supply is a bit constrained for many reasons. But soon I'll tell you how that could affect fertiliser prices going forward. It's unclear when and how strong this is going to be. So that's the biggest question mark around the farm input sector now. It's how strong it will be the increase in natural gas price in Europe and when is that going to happen. And the ABC has had to ask for a please explain from the Bureau of Meteorology after changes to forecasting already started to affect radio programs when it came to who was delivering forecasts across several programs across the country. So I'll have more on what's going on there first. But we've been talking about this bumper crop in South Australia, lots of great yields coming off, could be the the largest crop South Australia has ever produced. And the national commodity forecaster, ABES, is tipping winter grain production this season will actually come in just under last year's record-breaking harvest uh, as you look across what's been happening in all the different states. Clint Jasper has more. Despite La Nina's third appearance in a row and the wet, cold conditions it brought to the East Coast, ABARES Executive Director Dr Jared Greenville says nationally things are looking good. Yeah, it's certainly been an eventful year this year um, and I guess as the season continues we're seeing overall some pretty good conditions like when you take a national kind of perspective and we're forecasting that the gross value of agricultural production is going to be pretty much on par with the record that it set last year at $85 billion. ABES forecasts the national winter grain harvest at 62 million tonnes this season. Favourable conditions in WA and South Australia have helped raise bumper crops, 23.8 million tonnes in the West and 11.2 million tonnes in SA. Both will be record breakers if those numbers are achieved. And they've more than offset the smaller harvest expected to come out of New South Wales, where devastating floods and challenging conditions during the season have led ABES to forecast a harvest of 13.2 million tonnes, about 30% less than last year's best on record for the state. In Victoria, crop damage and losses in the north will be more than offset by better conditions in the Mallee region. In total, ABES has forecast winter grain production to rise 15% off last year's crop to 10.7 million tonnes. And Queensland's winter crop production is forecast at 2.9 million tonnes, which would make it the second largest on record, while summer grain production is also tipped to lift 5% to 2.6 million tonnes. But this year, farmers have paid huge bills for their inputs and Dr Jared Greenville says that'll weigh on profitability. We're expecting that to decline from last year. So last year we saw some record levels of farm profits across the country. But this year going in, although we we haven't got our full survey results back, but based on what we're observing in terms of fertiliser prices, which have been around three times above what they might otherwise be, um, we're expecting that to squeeze out quite a lot. Dr Greenville says high commodity prices combined with strong overseas demand is tipped to push farm exports to a record-breaking $72 billion. Countries and and other buyers have really turned to Australia as uh, being a fairly reliable producer of food Um, and we've seen that 
continue. And so that's that's been, a, a, I guess, a bit of a reason why we've been able to export or that demand side has been so high. And that's really kind of contributed to the high export pace. Some of the most acute impacts of the wet, cold spring have been felt by vegetable farmers along the Murray River. Victorian onion grower Peter Shadbolt has been struggling with this year's harvest. Getting bogged two, three times a day sometimes. Last week we were bogged at three o'clock in the afternoon and we didn't get out till 10.30 that night. And normally we would, we've never been bogged harvesting onions before ever. So it's certainly bringing a whole lot of new challenges. While prices are high, so are the bills. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. You get a bit excited when you see the prices of what you're getting and then you get the bills for the fertiliser and the diesel and all those things have gone up by so much. Some of Peter Shadbolt's onions end up in Melbourne wholesaler Michael Piccolo's warehouse. It's, it's a high rise. I mean, this time of year, usually we're purchasing onions, 10 kilo onions for maybe $7 a bag. Now we're purchasing, you know, close to 20 And the especially high prices are expected to stick around till after Christmas. From what we're gathering and from what we're hearing from growers and wholesalers, I think it'll push through to probably the end of Jan, Feb. So it's probably a two-month thing. Leading up to Christmas, it'll be high prices. And then I think after Christmas, we'll start to see them settle, but they'll still be pretty high. But rest assured, growers and wholesalers are nearly certain the $10 iceberg lettuce won't be making an appearance on the Christmas shopping list. Clint Jasper ending that story with additional reporting from Francesco Salvo. Now... Can this record crop be replicated? Well, certainly won't be able to if you can't get access to fertiliser. Australian farmers can expect some relief in potash and phosphate prices over the next six months, but nitrogen fertiliser prices are set to rise, even though they are extremely high, according to Rabobank. The company's semi-annual fertiliser outlook says current price trends and volatility are in line with a three-year cycle of peaks. And if history is to be believed, especially trends observed following the 2008 financial crisis, the GFC, then prices should come down in the coming months. But Rubberbank's Sydney-based farm inputs analyst Victor Pistoia says primary producers should keep a close eye on prices as buying at the right time will be critical. We are going to see some relief in the prices, mainly for potash nutrient. We can face some relief for phosphate as well because these two nutrients are the ones that farmers can reduce application rates and still be able to harvest good yields. But that's not the case of nitrogen. So if you cut nitrogen application rates, you're going to cut your yields. And for nitrogen as well, we have the situation around Europe and the gas because all nitrogen fertilizers that farmers use globally now, they come from ammonia and Ammonia, by its turns, comes from natural gas. It's a major feedstock. And Europe is a major producer, importer, and exporter. And as we speak now, beginning of December, the gas storage in Europe still have good levels, but winter is going on there. And it's not clear when the major countries will need to go back in the market and start buying gas again. That will increase price because they have a lack of supply because of the sanctions against Russia. So when that happens, it will likely lead to a closing in the industries that manufacture nitrogen fertilizers. So they're going to cut the supply globally. And it's unclear when and how strong this is going to be. So that's the biggest question mark around the farming input sector now. 
it's how strong it will be the increase in natural gas price in Europe and when is that going to happen. So there's a lot riding on how cold they feel in Europe and how much heating they decide to use. Yes, yes. And this is a very recent thing, like from the past five, ten days, if we check the spot prices for gas, that is like someone entering the market that doesn't have a contract, it's increasing price for gas in Europe. So it's clear the price will increase, but it's not clear how strong and when that's going to increase bad for the manufacturers. But at least for phosphate and potash, there's going to be a relief in the horizon for farmers. And hopefully they will manage to keep the margins positive for the coming season. And depending on how the farmers set the enterprise as a whole, and especially when they are able to buy fertilizer. So as we've seen in this season, timing is critical for coming season. What advice do you have for for farmers regarding the best timing for buying that fertilizer? Uh, just keep a close contact with your dealer and always keep asking prices because things can change quite soon. That's my advice. Be a good friend of your dealer to be always updated with the prices. Rubberbank Australia Farm Inputs Analyst Victor Pistoia speaking with Tanya Murphy there. Keep on top of that because obviously it's extremely expensive at the moment. It's uh, coming up to a quarter past 12 on the Country Hour. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. We'll have weather up soon, but in the meantime, a senior ABC manager says the broadcaster has had to ask for a please explain from the Bureau of Meteorology after changes to forecasting had already started to affect radio programs. The Bureau is moving away from having meteorologists provide weather crosses to the ABC and other commercial radio stations in favour of using less qualified community information officers instead. At this stage, though, the South Australian Country Hour will still have the senior weather forecasters joining us, but Warwick Long spoke to the Head of Regional Rural and Emergency at the ABC, Hugh Martin, who says he has concerns about the further centralisation of Bureau staff presenting weather crosses to ABC programs. We got confirmation in late October that the the Bureau was planning on uh, making these changes to centralise their, their, their radio crosses. So there had been some discussions or some concerns beforehand in some of our regional stations that they were getting different um, different crosses from different locations, but there wasn't anything official. So we had a meeting with the Bureau in late October, on the 20th of October, and at that meeting they officially told us that they wanted their meteorologists to concentrate on the science and that they would be creating a central communications team to manage radio crosses that would be based um, in, in an East Coast capital city. So you had to ask them for that information after the change had already been made? That's correct. The changes hadn't been completed, but, the, um, but they were sort of underway. And, um, and so, for example, in mid-September, we had uh, some changes to our, our radio crosses in the Northern Territory. Um, and then... Uh, in early October in, in Queensland, some of our radio teams uh, were calling their regular bomb contacts for radio crosses and were told to contact a number, a phone number in Melbourne instead. So, um, and that was a change that, that wasn't communicated 
prior to those um, those presenters just being told or those on-air teams being told to call a different number. Is it concerning to what you can deliver to your audience that localised information could be lost if Bureau crosses are centralised? Well, look, first of all, let me say that... Um, I've got to, you know, I understand that the um, the Bureau of Meteorology has a an organisation to run. They're a government-funded organisation, just like we are, and they're managing um, uh, their budgets in the way that they see fit against a strategy that that they have set. So we can understand that there are going to be changes from time to time, and the rationale behind that we might disagree with, but that's not our um, it's, it's not our our organisation to run. What we're looking for really is a clear communication process so that we can understand what it is that they, that, that they're wanting to do, how what the changes are that, they, that they're going to make. It's a question of accuracy too, isn't it? You've got presenters on radio programs right now introducing senior forecasters and meteorologists onto their show when they are in fact not that. They're something else under the Bureau of Meteorology. Well, that's that's true too, and it's it's unfortunate because it's also part of that that, that communication process, which is not quite um, where we want it to be at the moment. We actually don't know who these people, who the communication, um, uh, um, you know, experts are at the other end. Often, whereas. Um, through you know, through years of, of interaction, we've come to know their senior meteorologists um, and form that relationship with them, which is really important. That's not to say that we can't um, expect that to happen uh, again in the future with with um, uh, communication um, experts, but who are well informed and who have got um, you know really strong science um, knowledge and, um, and and you know. The, the detailed information, but that's not where we're at at the moment. And this is the problem. And this is something that um, I'm very keen to work with the bomb to understand how we can make that um, that work for both both parties, for us and for them, and for our audiences, which is really what it's all about. Because Australian taxpayers and Australian uh, audiences everywhere are the reason that we do this. So it's um, it's really really important that we get it right. So you will be following this up with the Bureau of Meteorology. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have um, uh, a regular um, kind of point of contact. Uh, it's, it's been disrupted over the last couple of years because of COVID and all kinds of, of changes, structural changes within um, their organisation. However, um, it is something that is, it is crucial to how we operate and I'm very keen to make sure that we get it back on track. Head of Regional Rural and Emergency at the ABC, Hugh Martin, speaking with Warwick Long. And uh, just to let you know, Hugh Martin is the manager of the department that Warwick Long works for. And in a statement, though, the Bureau of Meteorology has replied saying, community information officers will have relevant qualifications in meteorology, climatology, hydrology, communications, environmental science and or engineering from an Australian educational institution. And uh, where possible, the community information officers are based in the region where they broadcast. However, the broadcast, the Bureau's priority, I should say, remains on providing accurate and timely information to enable better decision-making across the community. And uh, radio crosses are shared across both the national CIO team and the local team to ensure the availability of staff at the hours requested by the radio stations. Currently, the Bureau has approximately 90 staff around Australia who deliver radio crosses, including community information officers. So a bit more detail there from the Bureau of 
Meteorology. We will speak with the Bureau of Meteorology with a senior forecaster in just a moment. But until then, graziers across South Australia will now have free access to a satellite imagery service that shows you how much feed remains in your paddocks. The Meat and Livestock Australia initiative claims to be a world-first technology recording feed mass every five days, showing pasture mass at one hectare resolution for levy payers. MLA teamed up with ag data analytics company Sebo Labs based in Queensland and co-founder Phil Tickle says it will help graziers match stocking rates to the pasture availability. This is, uh, you know, some world-first technology to provide um, every um, livestock producer in Australia with access to objective information on their feed base. So on a monthly basis, how many kilograms of dry matter they've got, um, how it's changing over time, how it compares to the same time last year or last month, uh, and how they match their, uh, their stocking rates to the carrying capacity on their farm. So this is going to have direct financial benefit? It's really about you know, early decision making. So uh, we've done uh, surveys and looked at um, you know, people uh, you know, running out of feed and having to make um, sort of late decisions uh, at the wrong time and, and uh, losing money on trades, for example. Um, and this is going to provide them with some objective information to, to really make informed, more, more informed, more objective decisions. Is any of the data you've got available now um, historic? Are people able to, to already compare uh, trends year on year? Yeah, so uh, we've um, we've processed data back to early 2017, which is when the uh, this particular satellite data became available, uh, and then we've developed uh, or collected thousands of um, of uh, pasture biomass assessments around Australia. Um, a lot of those collected by producers themselves to um, to calibrate the models uh, uh, to, for providing re- you know, reliable estimates of um, of dry matter on a farm. So they've got um, straight up they've actually got uh, data back to 2017 on a monthly basis. Please tell me that right now it looks a picture of green over most of Australia. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And there's lots of places that have got more than double the um, the, uh, the you know the partial they would normally have at this time of the year. And of course, you're a satellite junkie, but Phil Tickle, you must have been watching the New South Wales Victorian floods. Tell us what it looks like from a satellite perspective. Um, well, quite often we. <laughs> Quite often we actually can't see through the uh, through the clouds um, when we, when there is flooding events. So, of um, you know, so you know, there's limitations there. But um, certainly in the Gulf floods um, uh, a few years ago, we were you know got lucky and uh, sort of a day after the floods and were able to image that. Uh, and similarly, there has been imaging over Victoria, but um, it's pretty horrifying seeing those landscapes go under. Um, and I suppose from our perspective, what we can do is then help people um, understand you know how those how those areas recover over time. Uh, just going back to the 2019 February floods that uh, did see an enormous and uh, huge part of northwest Queensland turn into an inland sea. I remember you showing me those photos, but what is your what have the satellite imagery told you since? Are those pastures recovering in a way that's productive? It's yeah, it's um, it's inter- interesting to see. There's been there's been you know long term major impacts on the uh, on the uh, you know the pasture productivity of some of those areas. So there's obviously a lot of scouring. There's a lot of um, uh, you know mitral grass sort of underwater for a long time. So it's taking it's taking a long time to recover. And actually since then, you know, we haven't had the best of seasons in the Gulf Country either. So um, you know it's uh, we've got the ability to start to then track it, track those uh, those systems and look at how they recover over time. And obviously, um forestry thickening do these satellites show those kind of differences too over time yes yeah, so as part of this service the um the producers are getting access to uh, to annual time series data on woody vegetation change uh, as well as ground cover change on a monthly basis and and certainly we're sort of seeing uh, seeing you know, a lot of areas there's a, there's a, there's a net increase in, uh, in woody vegetation cover uh, across most of northern australia 
And just finally, Phil Tickle, where will this information be stored and in any way will it be used beyond the uh, initial means of measuring biomass? Like, could this information be used against the industry, for instance? Uh, we as a company, you know, we're a, we're a self-funded company. We're contributing to this uh, to this initiative. Um, it's a 50-50 uh, co-funded initiative with uh, with MLA, the MLA donor company. Our job is to maintain producer trust. Um, so that's what we what we succeed on. Um, so uh, what we're all about here now is providing the best information possible to producers to represent their industry uh, and the and the stakeholders in that industry. Phil Tickle, co-founder of SIBO Labs, have teamed up with MLA to offer levy payers free access to a satellite imagery to help budget their pastures. So go to the MLA website to access this tool. Now to find out what's happening in weather, I'm joined by Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Mark Analak. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Good afternoon, listeners. Now, I was reading about this heat wave in the north of the country, but we might experience a bit of that in South Australia too, by the sounds of things. Very warm conditions across pastoral districts as we speak. Um, you know, the last three or four days have been very hot as well, with temperatures getting into the low 40s for much of the um, sort of the northwestern and northern parts of the state. Um, I think currently Udnadad is sitting on about 40 degrees. They've been up as high as 41 already today, uh, and still with a good a good chunk of the afternoon still to come. Um, and up in uh, Moomba as well, temperatures are reaching 40. So um, very warm conditions. And with those very, very hot conditions across the north of the state, uh, very unsettled conditions as well. And we can expect some afternoon showers and thunderstorms to pop up across the north. Um, And given the heat, uh, we, we could even see some gusty thunderstorms with that. Uh, so just keep an eye out on the on the bureau's webpage for any uh, severe thunderstorm warnings that may uh, pop up this afternoon um, in the far north of the state. A little bit further south, um, we do have a band of middle-level cloud that's sort of drifting across northern agricultural areas and southern pastoral districts. Embedded in that middle-level cloud, some some thunderstorm activity. And currently we're seeing thunderstorm activity just uh, moving across uh, the west coast of Air Peninsula around Streaky Bay, uh, heading eastwards towards Kimber and then probably heading a little bit further east again over the Flinders uh, Ranges uh, overnight tonight and into tomorrow. Um, But further south, we're dominated by a a high-pressure ridge and southeasterly winds. Um, So that's giving us milder conditions partly cloudy skies and certainly milder temperatures over agricultural, southern agricultural areas today. Tomorrow, uh, there's not too much change, to be honest. Um, we still have a, a high-pressure system or a high-pressure ridge to the south of the mainland, so we maintain some form of southerly component to the winds, giving us milder conditions over agricultural areas. There is a, a bit of a, an embedded trough in that westerly flow that may produce a, a couple of light showers about the lower southeast and maybe southern coasts and ranges uh, tomorrow afternoon, but there won't be much in that at all. You know, a couple of millimetres at most, I would think. I would think. Uh, and those hot, unsettled conditions continue across the far north of the state. It's not really until Thursday that those milder southerly winds push far enough inland to give some uh, some of those in the far north a bit of bit of reprieve. Um, so we'll see temperatures a little bit milder through the entire state on Thursday as that high-pressure system sort of becomes established south of the Bight and those southerly winds continue to push cooler winds further north. Weather-wise, we're not expecting any weather around uh, 
much of the state on Thursday. It should be mostly dry, but moving in from the west is another trough of low pressure and we're likely to see showers and thunderstorms developing about our western border later on Thursday. That trough and associated showers and thunderstorms are expected to gradually move eastwards across the western parts of the state on Friday. Eastern parts will remain dry. Eastern and central districts will remain dry. Uh, the showers and thunderstorms will probably reach around about um, maybe the west coast of Air Peninsula, Air Peninsula and maybe Udna Data by the very end of the day. So that gives you some idea about where the, where the showers and thunderstorms are expected. And then on Saturday, they'll continue to move eastwards across central and eastern districts uh, before clearing out on Sunday. Uh, and just quickly looking ahead to sort of the latter part of the weekend and early next week, another high-pressure system will push in south of the Bight, so milder southerly winds uh, are likely to bring uh, cooler temperatures and some light shower activity to southern coasts, but um, certainly looking at milder conditions for the start of next week. Right. Thank you so much for that. My Ma- pleasure. Mark Anlake there from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, it'll be partly cloudy. Uh, there is the chance of a thunderstorm overnight down to 18 to 24, but reaching 33 to 40 degrees. The lower western will be partly cloudy, medium chance of showers, possibly a thunderstorm as well around overnight temperatures down to 14 to 18, reaching around 30 degrees. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today. Now this flood is causing damage and enormous concern for river communities in this state. But in some good news, normally around this time of year, fish are looking to travel up the Darling River to breed. But they're normally stopped at the main weir at Menindi in the far west. But... Those gates are open in anticipation for further flooding this week. It's pretty exciting if you're a fish nerd like me. A lot of people probably don't get excited by this sort of stuff, but I think it's pretty cool. It means the fishing below the weir, downstream of the weir, won't be as good for the next couple of weeks or so. But um, from a fish perspective, it's really good. So we actually get some mixing of fish from the north and the south. It does mean it is in preparation for some uh, more flows, which is causing damage. But we'll take a look at what this big flow is going to mean for fish soon. Also, if you're a fan of mangoes, you might have noticed there's more varieties around these days and more to choose from. And we're coming into the time when I think it's it's prime mango season. I like a, a good mango in summer. So we'll get into that soon. But first, we have to find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the SA government will spend $1.2 million on temporary housing for hundreds of residents who will be affected by flooding along the River Murray. After checking almost 5,000 properties in the Riverland and the Murray lands, 260 houses households have said they may need short-term emergency accommodation. The Premier Peter Malinowskis says that the government has started booking 500 beds in houses, motel rooms and cabins for families with no other option. A record grain harvest is expected in the state this season. The Australian Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics says that South Australian crop production will hit 11.2 million tonnes. That's up from 8.5 million last season. And a train and a car have collided at Crystal Brook in the state's mid-north. Details are sketchy, but the crash happened just before midday. Emergency services are at the scene. More news at one o'clock.
Thanks for that, Matt. Now, we were speaking about the river. It's certainly causing a lot of concern at the moment. The head of the Riverlands wine industry has met with the state government's primary industries minister to request crisis assistance for growers. It comes as about 111 hectares of vineyards are expected to be affected by the flooding, with a property near a levee bank in Crescent near Renmark inundated yesterday. Riverland Wine Executive Officer Lyndall Rowe explains what preparations have been put in place and what support they're asking for. Because we've had time to plan for this, um, we've known it's coming, Um, people are getting very well prepared. I I know of a number of growers that have been uh, building levies on their properties and and putting infrastructure in place uh, to try and keep that border away. It's taken a little while, but uh, we're finally getting some data through about and some good modelling on what it may look like once the floods hit some peaks. And so, for example, Vine Health have just put out some mapping based on 200 gigalitres a day um, coming through the river system. So that would affect vineyards owned by 44 growers. Now, it varies on how badly affected they'll be. Some are just a small percentage of having their vineyard flooded, while others would have their entire vineyard flooded. The flood mitigation preparation is definitely front of mind for uh, most people. But yes, I have spoken with a few CCW growers uh, in recent weeks and months, again, about um, they have a few CCW grape growers have reached out to the state government asking for support ahead of next year's vintage. Has the Riverland Wine had or are planning to have any meetings with the state government for support or assistance? Well, we actually already have. Um, We met with Minister Scriven last week and we've actually put out our position paper as well. We know that the Riverland is incredibly important to the Australian wine industry um, and that's in terms of scale, economic contribution, diversity, export value, technology, etc. You know, what we're searching for is support from the government to do two things, assist wineries to sell more wine in new and existing markets and two, to support growers to transition to new product mixes. This comes simply because we've got one crisis on top of another crisis. So, you know, what we've had over the last few years is the China tariffs, shipping, and then, of course, the cost of inflation rising and rising, and it's just impacting and impacting. What we have is an inventory problem because there's uh, no storage for red wine at the moment, and we're coming into a new season, and it's looking like around 40% of red wine grapes. And what I mean by that is Shiraz and Cabernet that are uncontracted, have no home. So you you can just imagine that impact on families, on business, on a community. I think as an industry, we need to work together and work on a plan that is going to help benefit the entire region. And did the minister, um, did Minister Scriven um, make any any plans uh, for any initiatives at that stage or or give a date on when she might uh, review that position paper? Uh, No, she didn't at the time, um, but the talks are ongoing. What I really want to point out, apart from, you know, as I said, it's really going to impact business and families, but there's going to, and this isn't going to sort of go away in five minutes. We're looking at two to four years of pain. We're very concerned about mental health and that social wellbeing as well. So, you know, we're looking at initiatives that can support people in that way. But really the ask to federal government is to support people to transition and to adapt their businesses. But we really, it's going to take a big effort from, you know, within the community and also outside the community. 
Riverland Wine Executive Officer Linda Rowe speaking with Eliza Burlage. And staying with concerns around the flooding, uh, they're worried about the Darling River in the far west of New South Wales. And normally around this time of year, fish looking to travel up the Darling River to breed are normally stopped at the main weir at Menindee. But in some good news, all six gates at the weir have been opened fully in anticipation of further flooding next week, or this week, I should say. Regional Engagement Officer for the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Richard Unsworth, explained to Oliver Brown the historical significance behind the move and the additional benefit it's providing to the local fish populations. Gates have been open for some time, but these are when the gates have come clear of the water that there's no barrier on either side of the weir. When was the last time that something like this was done? It was back in 2012 when the gates were out of the water, uh, when there was high water back in 2012 for 29 days. And the time before that was back in 1998 when they were out of the water for 41 days. And that's quite a big difference in the, um, in the two time frames there. Do you reckon it will be a similar sort of time frame for this time? Totally dependent on how the water comes down the river and into Lake Wetherill. As Lake Wetherill increases in height and the town gauge goes up over or gets close to 9.6 metres here at Menindee, then they'll start to put the gates back in to manage the flow again. For the gates to be opened fully, it it means uh, big changes for the local fish population. Absolutely it does. So what it means is with some research that was done previously, even if the gates are in the water by 100 millimetres, that creates a real issue for fish being able to travel either north or south past the main weir. So as soon as they come out of the water, it creates free passage for all fish of all sizes that need to travel. And it certainly could mean that we could see more fish and more options for fish to be able to breed. And now, I mean, this is this is something that's uh, kind of obvious, but, you know, three years ago there was nothing in this river. And so w- what's going through your mind seeing this much water and animal activity around Menindee to even justify opening the um, the gates to begin with? So the gates are open because of the fact that it's, it's operationally they're able to do that and, and that creates this environmental benefit. But the fact is that we've got a big river all the way down the, the Darling Barker. We've got a big river in the Murray. We've got uh, explosions of bird species, you know, um, just the amount of birds that are breeding frogs. I do a little bit on frogs at my place and I've got four different species of frogs that are here at the moment. So, yeah, the wildlife are certainly uh, as happy as uh, larks, you could say. And um, in terms of the role that the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is actually playing in this whole thing with Water New South Wales and the authority, uh, is your role sort of more like just looking at things? Like what what exactly is the authority doing at the moment just in regards to this opening of the weir and uh, monitoring the species? So we have uh, people within the authority who would uh, be talking to Water New South Wales, for example, our native fish recovery strategy team, they would be uh, negotiating with Water New South Wales in regard to this. Uh, our river operators would be talking to them, even though that we would be leaving it to Water New South Wales to deal with. We talk to each other uh, on a regular basis. So, you know, it's, it's not... You, there's stuff happening behind the scenes, but not necessarily in front of people's faces, I guess. That was Richard Unsworth from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. DPI Fisheries Senior Manager and self-diagnosed fish nerd Ian Ellis is excited about the prospect of native fish migrating along the river. This gives them the first chance in about 10 years, I think, for fish to move from basically below the main weir to above, which essentially means moving from the southern basin back into the northern Murray-Darling Basin. And to actually know that that's happening now, like first time in 10 years, how does that feel as someone who overlooks the fish populations in the area? It's pretty exciting if you're a fish nerd like me. A lot of people probably 
don't get excited by this sort of stuff, but I think it's pretty cool. It means the fishing below the weir, downstream of the weir, won't be as good for the next couple of weeks or so. But um, from a fish perspective, it's really good. So we actually get some mixing of fish from the north and the south. And the other thing, which is a bit nerdy, but normally, even if the weirs are only slightly closed, downstream passage of sort of baby fish, usually if they go through a partially closed gate of that weir, they get mushed up in the turbulence and the velocities and the pressure changes and find it hard to move from upstream to downstream. So with everything fully open, we've actually not just got upstream movement, but we've got fish, particularly baby cod and yellow belly from, from upstream in Lake Weatherall, have the opportunity now to move straight through to the lower Darling Barker. Do you have any sort of idea of how long we could be seeing implica- impacts from this new decision as a result of the gates being opened? It means that at least for the next couple of weeks, at least while the gates are fully open, we'll be having that fish movement Upstream, so the adult fish that people would have noticed aggregating below will be moving upstream, but also those, as I mentioned earlier, smaller fish will be moving downstream pretty much unimpeded. And back in 2019, after those big fish death events at Menindi, the previous government did commit to providing more permanent fish passage at Menindi, and that essentially means a fish ladder at the main weir or, or nearby to allow fish to move from downstream to upstream, and we're, we're pretty hopeful for fisheries that that'll still happen in the next couple of years or so. And I think that was committed to back by Minister Littleproud, I think, back in 2019, um, after the fish kills, so we're, we're pretty hopeful that that stays on the table. If that does eventually happen, would you see sort of similar migration to what we're seeing now down at Menindi? Is it... That the idea? Yeah, it wouldn't be as stark to, to most people on the edge of the river because hopefully an appropriate fish ladder means fish would move up and, and get to the weir and find the fish ladder and move around the weir and keep going upstream. So that, that would happen almost continuously or, or particular times of the year at least. So you wouldn't necessarily see those big aggregations of fish that are, that are pretty easy pickings for anglers that we've been seeing below the, the weir during the flow event in the last sort of 10, 20 years. There'll still be fish there to to angle for and to catch, but most of them will hopefully find their way upstream and continue moving north. Ian Ellis from the Department of Primary Industries speaking to Oliver Brown there about what's happening in the far west of New South Wales. There's been a lot of focus on the River Murray, but the Darling... Barker is in flood as well and uh, is it's a lot longer system. It takes a lot longer to get here, but it is certainly making its way down to South Australia as well. And it sounds like the fish are going to be able to move around a little easier as well. It is 17 minutes to one. Glorious shot. Oh, just punches off the back foot. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. Thursday, join ABC Sports coverage of the second test between Australia and West Indies. This is the test match you won't want to miss. Live from Adelaide Oval. Australia v West Indies. On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill heard of the social media hit Humans of New York. It's where a photographer tells the story of people living in the Bigger Apple and now a local SA wine region is using a similar concept. Barossa Wine spoke to a range of people in the wine industry about their secret talents and took a photo of them with everything from yoga instructors, ballerinas, equestrians and gemologists involved. Emily Hay is the marketing and communications uh, manager for Barossa Australia and says it's about promoting the people behind the product. What 
we looked at for Barossa and what makes us really special, and I think this is very common across every region, is you know we're really famed for our, our wines and our products, but it's actually the people behind our region and the people behind those products and the wineries and the stories that make Barossa so unique. So we were looking at a way that we could bring them into the spotlight a little bit more. Uh, that was somewhat different to having winemakers with their noses in glasses in barrel hawks. And so uh, were people keen to get involved? Oh, absolutely. So we put the call out for people to share with us their you know, their quirky talents and their past lives and uh, we weren't sure what response we'd get but we had so much fun watching the submissions come in, uh, you know, finding out that Prue Henschke, who's incredible viticulturalist, is an award-winning spring roll maker was quite delightful. <laughs> so where did the idea come from to get this happening? So we were looking at the ways in which we share our information and, of course, social media has become more and more important in our lives in the way that we get information, uh, particularly when we look at the impacts of the pandemic and how everybody was really reaching out to each other and, and looking for more human moments. So we just decided to go for it and put people up there and tell stories that only took you know a minute or two to read, but left you feeling good and lighthearted about what Barossa is, and um, really giving our people this little moment to shine. We've seen campaigns, or not necessarily campaigns, but on social media things like Humans of New York. Was it something similar to that of, of just showing that human element of, of the industry? Yeah, absolutely. We were really inspired by Humans of New York. Um, that's something that we kept looking back to. And you know, I know in my own consumption of social media, that's something that you are, will always draw me in. So inspired by that, but then looking at that past life and trying to bring that to life a little bit more. So showing, you know, we're not just about, you know, winemaking or not just about um, chefs and, and tourism operators. We've had these really cool past lives or, you know, side hustles and different passions that make us really dynamic and um, exciting. What were some of the photos that have been taken? What were some of the, the secret talents? So we have everything from small goods, uh, maker, so David Lehman from David France Wines is incredibly passionate about his Met Worst. Um, in our podcast that we've got as well, he talks quite uh, passionately about <laughs> what does and doesn't make a proper Met Worst. We've also had Michael Hall, who is a gemologist, used to work for Christie's in the UK and now is now a winemaker. We've had chefs. Um, who are now wine educators like Sally Johnson, who's just been inducted as a Baron of Barossa this last weekend. Uh, so it's been really exciting. Uh, we've had geologists. We've had, most recently in coming up, we've had IT nerds. Um, we've had people who've done round-the-world world tours on motorbikes and all sorts of really crazy stories. I was uh, having a look as well. There's um, you know, yoga instructors and ballerinas yep. and those that mm-hmm. love horses and horse riding, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's really fun to see what makes up the the real core of that humanness humanness of of Brossens and, and what what feeds into what we bring um the visitor and what we bring to our products. 
Do these um, secret talents or these hobbies that they are involved with, do they, can they use them in their roles in the wine industry? Yeah, I think obviously, you know, some things like spring roll making, <laughs> they become a little bit more the dinner party trick. But, you know, for people like uh, Michael, who I mentioned earlier, it's that attention to detail and precision that he brings into his winemaking. So we have tried to tell a little bit about that story through the connection too. Emily Hay from Barossa speaking with Brooke Nandorf. And you can see some of these photos on Facebook just by searching Barossa Wine. These uh, humans of wherever, humans of New York obviously kicked it off, but uh, humans of wherever are great stories. Now uh, we'll head to uh, the ring because Australia's largest stock horse sale is underway. And uh, while graziers say they can justify paying thousands of dollars for a good working dog, does the work, because oh, the dog does the work of three men, can you justify the same for paying six figures for a good horse? Well, many bidders at this year's Dolby Australian Stock Horse Sale say you can. Alice Marshall at Dolby was at Dolby, I should say, for the biggest stock horse sale in the country, and uh, she filed this report. $100,000. That was the amount one St George couple walked away with after selling their stallion fittingly named Royale Double Your Money, at the Dolby Australian Stock Horse Sale. That was the top price of the sale. It, alongside some other hefty bids, like the $90,000 sale of a mare from Clifton and a $95,000 mare from Roma. They're both notably progeny of the retired camp-drafting stallion Hazelwood Conman. These big figures helped to bump up the average price to $22,961 higher than last year's average of $19,351. So why are these prices so high? I asked David Felsch, the owner of Ray White Rural, who hosts the sale. The horse industry's gotten more professional and more prize money within competitions, and which leads people into breeding better horses and paying more for them, and, and I think that's it's more competition-wise. Um, we've got a really good catalogue of horses, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's a step up on last year as well, so the quality's gotten better, so I suppose the money, the money comes with it. You said the competition prices have gone up. Have they gone up enough to to meet the the prices that we're seeing actually in the sale yard today? Well, I think also breeding a horse, giving it a foundation and having it come back through a sale, there's money in that as well as the competition side of it. But, I mean, there's some pretty big prize money around at the moment. And, and yeah, I do believe it's catching up slowly. The money being thrown around is enough to wow anyone, let alone someone who is yet to reach high school. Um, My name's Felicity Wells and I'm from Hannaford, an hour and... A half west of here, so. Wedged into the draw between some pretty experienced older cowboys, Felicity Wells is only 11 years old. But that didn't stop her from selling the gelding she was riding for a fair sum of money. He went for 26000 and I was pretty happy with that. And, um, yeah, I was happy to ride in there. The... You were riding up against some pretty big names and I dare say you're the youngest that's been on the draw so far, do you think? Yeah, probably, yeah. Fun to be like that. Definitely fun. And can you tell me a little bit about the horse that you were riding? What's his name? Uh, well, we call him Morton, but his real name's Shield Tyson. And I've uh, I've just been riding. Well, Jonathan Sylvester's been having him for quite a bit, like six weeks, just before here, and I got on him. Out. So this is probably my sixth time riding him, 
Um, and yeah, I. Yeah, he's he's a six-year-old gelding, and I, for the sixth time I've rode him, I quite like him. Oh, she's doing so well. Just 11 Felicity Wells from Hannaford there. And uh, um, there were some big sales there. Riley Elliott, who is a 13-year-old from Mornish in uh, Queensland, also sold his horse for $57,500. So some big prices were reached at that sale. And it seems everything is uh, pretty expensive these days, dogs and uh, horses alike. Finally today... It is the time for mangoes. And if you're a fan, you've probably noticed the increasing range of varieties for sale. Now, there's obviously the well-known varieties, Kensington Pride, Calypso, R2E2, but there's a new range of varieties with different colours and flavours coming through as well. Perfection Fresh is rolling out the Scarlet Delight and Hula varieties that are currently growing on farms in the Northern Territory in Queensland. CEO Michael Simonetta explains to Matt Brand about these varieties, which originate actually from from Israel. There are two new varieties that we've been uh, trialling now for a number of years. This journey started 10 or 12 years ago when we imported the original rootstock from Israel. They're bred in Israel. Uh, and we've trialled them now in the Northern Territory and in North Queensland, up in the Atherton Tablelands. And we've been very encouraged by how they've performed over the course of the last five to seven, eight years now since we first started seeing some fruit. So we've had, this is our second year now of semi-commercial production. We're still two to three years away of of being in full commercial production of these varieties, but we're certainly encouraged so far by how they're performing agronomically and also how they're being received by customers, retail customers and consumers alike. For our radio audience, Is it easy to explain what these varieties look, taste like, what makes them unique? Yeah, the Scarlet Delight is probably the most distinctive of the two because it's got that deep red scarlet skin colour, which is much deeper than what we traditionally know in in mangoes in Australia or any of the the traditional varieties, Australian varieties. So it's it's got a much deeper red scarlet colour. And its flesh is darker than um, even a Kensington Pride or a Calypso mango. Uh, And the scarlet, I describe it as having an aromatic flavour and a mixture of, I taste a mixture of like peach and nectarine hints uh, in the flavour. Hula, I can, I always describe it as a Kensington Pride lookalike. It has a different flavour profile to Kensington Pride, even though it's more it's it's a more traditional mango flavour, but it's uh it's not quite as sweet as Scarlet Delight, but uh, certainly a a, a very pleasant flavour. Its major attributes are that it uh, it's it's got great shelf life, and with both of these varieties, they're ready to consume before this before they're soft. So. They are ready to, if they yield to slightly to pressure in, in the palm of your hand, if they yield slightly to pressure, with slight pressure, they're ready to eat. So you should not wait for these mangoes to go soft before, that, before you eat them. And these two varieties, what sort of season has it been like for them in 2022? All mangoes are later this year. So the whole season is a couple of weeks late because of the, uh, the colder than average temperatures and the rain that we've had so uh, every, nobody's been exempt 
from the rain, obviously higher in some places than others. But the season is running two weeks later than last year. So um, the typical window for these varieties are Scarlet Delight will start earlier. It's an earlier maturing variety. So in the future, it'll start around the first week of October. And then Hula will start uh, harvesting probably the first week in November. And they'll go through till early to mid-January, maybe into mid-February is the uh, is the window for them. So at the moment, as you said, they're semi-commercial. So does that mean people might see them in their supermarket shelves? Yeah, they'll be in some selected supermarkets and some independent retailers and independent supermarkets. There's not a great, there's not a huge volume of them this year, but they're out there. And as each year goes by now, you'll see more and more of them. And for your company, what does the rollout plan look like from here on in terms of more production? We've got a plan to ramp up production for both varieties over the course of the next five years. And uh, it'll be predominantly fruit that'll be grown in the Northern Territory and in the Atherton Tablelands. We, are, we haven't begun trials anywhere further south yet, like, say, in Bundaberg or um, some of the southern regions, but we will in the future. So, you know, we, we, plan, to, uh, we plan to have a significant number of trees planted uh, so that they'll be readily available to all Australian consumers and provide a, a bit of differentiation, a bit of excitement and just uh, different flavour profiles for the mango-loving Australian consumers. And will will that mean pulling out old varieties to plant these new varieties or, or going into sort of virgin country? It's it's both. We will more and more focus on removing older varieties rather than greenfield sites, but it'll be a combination of both. And what makes you confident, Michael, that consumers want more mango varieties? What makes us confident is that consumers tell us all the time across all categories that they're excited by trying something new and all consumers have different taste palettes. A lot of baby boomers like me grew up loving the Kensington Pride mango, uh, but my taste buds have moved on and others others would have, would have as well. So I think that uh, we're all seeking for a change for change and uh, a, a level of indulgence with our food that only new varieties can bring. Michael Simonetta, the CEO of Perfection Fresh, speaking with Matt Brand. And you can read more about this new wave of mangoes on our website. You just have to search for ABC Rural. That's abc.net.au slash rural. I think it sounds like there's a couple of great ones there to try this year. I actually didn't know there were so many new mango varieties. I really just think of those those big three, Kensington Pride, R2E2 and Calypso. But uh, there's uh, some more on the plate for this summer. So that's exciting. Deb Tribe joins me now. You mango lover? I love mangoes, but they're best eaten over a sink, I find, because (laughs) they are so juicy. But yes, delicious. Always on the uh, Christmas um, pavlova. Absolutely. Uh, Look, coming up, we are going to talk about recycling. We're very good recyclers in South Australia, but our weak spot is around soft plastics because we've seen a whole lot of those programs go up in smoke. Three new councils have got a trial in place. We're going to try and find out what they're going to do to make soft plastic recycling a reality. That is a, it's a big area of concern and one that needs to be tackled. More to come on your local radio as we approach one o'clock. 
ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Because I've been here for 35 years, mate. Yeah. And the weather is beautiful. <laughs> when I first moved here, yep, I had a lot of friends saying, what are you doing? Hear it anywhere, anytime, via the ABC Listen app. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.